Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from June 2015, Dr. Mark Kieran and Dr. Peter Manley discuss the latest treatment options and research for pediatric brain tumors. Dr. Kieran is the Director of Pediatric Neuro-Oncology at Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorders Center, and Dr. Peter Manley is the Director of the Pediatric Neuro-Oncology Outcomes Clinic at Dana-Farber Boston Children's. Uh, during our chat today, Dr. Manley and I will be discussing the latest in treatments and research in pediatric patients with brain tumors. So the first question that uh, we received uh, related to what trends we're seeing in pediatric brain tumor with respect to change in incidence. So there hasn't really been a significant change in incidence over the last few years. We did see an increase in incidence in the uh, late 90s when imaging had improved. So now that we have much better imaging and we're able to look at the brain with CT scans and now specifically with MRI scans, we are seeing, uh, we did see an increase in incidence, but now over it's been fairly stable. Okay, how about uh, are there any specific tumor types that are on the rise or changing in incidence? There hasn't really been a significant change in the incidence of specific brain tumors. Uh, the most common type of brain tumor that we see are low-grade gliomas and that has stayed pretty stable over the last few years as well. Okay, um, why don't we talk a little bit about just some of the major trends and developments that are happening for treatment in children with uh, tumors of the brain and spine. So there's been a lot of excitement over the last uh, 10 years in terms of the new treatments that we have for pediatric brain tumors. Uh, we specifically are looking more on a molecular level now with brain tumors and finding new potential targets where we use the term more smart drugs or targeted therapy uh, to be able to treat these tumors. What that allows us to do is allows us to target the tumor itself but not necessarily expose children to long-term toxicities associated with therapies. We're also learning about outcomes of these patients as well in order to determine what the best therapies are so we, they don't have long-term toxicities in the uh, down the road 20 or 30 years. Dr. Kieran has also been an expert in that area and led a lot of the that have been able to uh, determine the specific mutations that we are seeing in the tumor. So I don't know if you would like to add some information on that as well. Yeah, I might uh, at least let people be aware that uh, there's an enormous uh, excitement in this concept of personalized medicine, but it requires a number of things that I think families have to be aware of. First of all, by definition, it requires a piece of tissue, which means we need to actually be able to analyze your child's tumor. The idea of trying to treat all tumors as if they're the same has turned out to not, not to be very successful. So you need to be prepared for that. Obviously, the place where you get your biopsy doesn't just need to do the biopsy or the partial resection on which to obtain that material. It's critical that they know how to process the sample so that many of these suffices that can be achieved in the kind of way that will be meaningful. The other thing that I think is important to recognize is particularly for some of the more aggressive tumors. It's not like we're planning to go from radiation and chemotherapy to a single uh, targeted drug or inhibitors. These inhibitors are still in early clinical trial and for many of the aggressive tumors it's not a question of either or, it's a question of adding them in to try and improve the outcome for that patient population. Obviously as we get better at doing this we'll understand which patients can use just the drug which need the combinations, but those are things that are going to take a while to learn. So it's one of those circumstances where as the field is shifting, I think families need to be aware 
that it's as important where you get your biopsy and what they do with it as it is in making the diagnosis because in many ways that's what's going to guide therapy down the road both for your child and for other patients with the same tumor but with a different uh, mutation and therefore actually a different treatment. So um, why don't we, um, obviously we're watching a lot of uh, the evolution of the treatment. Why don't we talk a little bit about some of the major trends in reducing long-term uh, toxicity, both from the tumor as well as from the treatment, both traditional and some of the newer ones. So as Dr. Kieran had stated before, the first thing that we usually do is obtain tissue for the diagnosis of a brain tumor. There are certain aspects in terms of a surgical procedure that are important in terms of uh, your diagnosis. We always want to remove the tumor or as much of the tumor as possible, but in as safe as a manner as possible. So some of the things that we've done here at uh, Dana-Farber and Children's Hospital is we have an operating room that actually has an MRI within the operating room itself. And so what this, that allows the surgeon to do is before the surgery is completed, that they can actually take a picture to make sure that all the tumor has been completely removed if that is feasible. We always also want to make sure that we don't cause any injury by doing too much surgery. So our neurosurgeons here are quite excellent at understanding when to stop a surgery as well. Uh, because that's one of the issues from a long-term standpoint is there can be injury during surgical procedures. So having an MRI within the operating room allows a child to undergo just one surgery and hopefully remove as much tumor as possible in a safe manner as possible without having to undergo a second surgery. Um, our imaging techniques have also improved where we're able to do look at a tumor and look at the nerves that go around the tumor and all the vessels so that the surgeon even before they're in the operating room can determine whether or not a uh, gross total resection or being able to remove the tumor completely is feasible. So that allows the surgeon to know where the normal structures of the brain are in relation to the tumor, which is very important. And then the next phase is the diagnosis. As Dr. Kieran said, we are able to do a lot of, get a lot of information on the tumor. The most important thing is just the diagnosis itself. And then based on that information, we can then move forward in determining what the best treatment is for that patient. Uh, like, Dr. like we had been discussing before, we also know that certain treatments are standard and that we need to apply those therapies. One of the treatments that we are trying to modify in, the, in a lot of the more recent studies is radiation. So radiation is an important treatment for brain tumors. However, we know that the long-term toxicities on a developing brain from radiation can be quite problematic in the future. So with the most common types of brain tumors that we see, such as low-grade gliomas, we really try to avoid radiation if at all possible. And we did uh, publish a recent paper showing that the children who have low-grade gliomas have excellent long-term survival and that if radiation is given, it actually makes it a little bit worse uh, in terms of survival. Uh, in addition to this, medulloblastoma is another very common brain tumor in children. And we've tried to reduce the amount of radiation time where we do not have to give them a, 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 as big an exposure. So normally we usually give radiation to the whole brain and to the whole spine, and we're trying to reduce that dose. So the last major uh, protocol or study that we utilized looked at giving an even lower dose, and it seems that so far that has been going quite well. We're still waiting on the final information for that. So being able to reduce the radiation, the two, mo two most common types of brain tumors, is very important and that will hopefully decrease the long-term toxicities. And then in addition, as we learn more about the molecular signatures or characteristics of a specific tumor, we can add in 
medications that will potentially allow us to avoid other chemotherapies or radiation uh, to prevent the long-term side effects. I don't know if you would like to add anything else. I mean, I think the only thing I would say is um, the treatment for children with brain and uh, tumors of the brain and spine are obviously incredibly complex, and this is uh, perhaps more than any other disease we deal with a team effort that you need uh, pediatric neurosurgeons who really are experts and experience in the resections of these tumors. <clears throat> We're fortunate here that we have neurosurgeons that specialize in different parts of the brain and spine because, again, the brain um, in multiple areas can have different issues with the way you approach it, and having that expertise is important. Once the surgeon has done their work, as I said, it's critical that the pathology department have the expertise in terms of understanding how to analyze these tumors and to do the molecular profile. But it's more than just that. It's also having the neurologist that can manage the seizures if those are an issue, uh, weakness with physical and occupational therapy, some of the hormone difficulties that can occur as part of uh, uh, damage to that part of the uh, brain, um, the uh, people that specialize in vision and hearing, particularly if those are involved or around the site of the tumor that need support. Again, the goal here isn't to just have one person see and try and treat a child. It's this concept of multidisciplinary care where if you can get all of the groups together and really focused on one patient, um, all kind of putting in their expertise to ensure that the balances that are required um, are considered up front and managed appropriately, uh, the belief is that these patients will have much more effective uh, quality of life coming out the other end. It's not just a question of whether your child survives a tumor that's critical. Obviously, it's the quality of survivorship. Are they going to be able to finish school? Are they going to have relationships? Are they going to be able to get married, job, support themselves and their families? We see survivorship not just as alive or dead. It's that whole package of doing stuff and waiting until the damage is done and then thinking about it isn't the best way to approach it. It's how do you develop a strategy that prevents some of that damage from from happening in the first place because to some extent that probably improves the chances of either minimizing it or at least dealing with it if it has to occur. And I would say that in some ways that's I think one of the particularly special uh, components of highly specialized programs that can offer all of that added care. So um, why don't we um, again uh, back to one of the questions that we'd already dealt with again um, somebody asked what headway are we making in the use of precision medicine in treating pediatric brain tumors? So I think again, we, we did discuss this a little bit in that precision medicine is becoming a much more common where we look at the tumor itself. And as Dr. Kieran and I have said before, you will need a surgical procedure to remove tissue so that we can look at the tissue itself and it needs to be processed in the appropriate fashion. Precision medicine is important, but it doesn't replace the standard of care for some of these tumors. So the treatment for these tumors we have very specific therapies that we need to utilize and we know how the outcomes are. Precision medicine is becoming more common in children who have recurrent tumors and can be helpful in learning about their specific targets that we can utilize other medications for. It is important to understand that with, preci with precision medicine, we do find out some information, but it is not always applicable to the treatments. And so I think that's another uh, aspect to realize is that we can find out some more information about the tumor, but it doesn't always necessarily apply to the therapies. And as we have talked about here as well, with a multidisciplinary team who's very aware of these different mutations, it's very important to be able to understand what mutation goes with what therapy to be able to choose a specific medicine, not just 
from that standpoint, but also to know of other interactions with other medications so that we are able to provide this medication in as safe a fashion as possible. We are doing, we are looking at everybody's tumor from a molecular standpoint uh, and trying to learn more about that, which will hopefully improve the treatments in the years to come, but it doesn't necessarily apply at that specific moment that we will still utilize the best treatments available and not necessarily use targeted therapies up for upfront therapy. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think I would add into that this concept that, uh, you know, if we had another webinar tomorrow, there would almost be a slightly different answer. The advances happening in the concepts of understanding or discovering the mutations that lead to the different cancers and the development of drugs against them are happening so rapidly that in many ways it's an ongoing process and we have to be prepared to incorporate the newest information on an almost day-by-day -day basis. In particular, one of the things that I think has become quite exciting is this concept of what's called immune modulation, where we start to use the immune system to help uh, us patients a tumor without harming the patient themselves. The immune system has an incredible ability to recognize abnormal cells, and if we can actually harness that, uh, I think the opportunity to amplify or add in with the established therapy really becomes quite dramatic. Since this uh, area of, of research was really just, uh, although it's been around for many, many years, there have been some recent discoveries actually initiated here at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute that led to the discovery of molecules that are critical for controlling the process. And I think we're now seeing this explosion in ability and day by day, our ability to consider some of these options in patients um, is actually going on day by day. So one of the things that's I think uh, important for families, particularly if there's been a relapse or progression in your child's tumor, one of the things you need to consider is that the information you heard even months or years ago may now already be significantly out of date. Precision medicine is moving so rapidly that it's important to integrate with a group kind of information so that they can help guide you in what may be some newer and hopefully better, more effective therapies. Um, and actually, it was interesting that the next brain tumor research that you see is particularly likely to yield clinical benefit and improve outcomes, both in terms of the survival of the tumor as well as the long-term quality of life. So that's always a nice thing to say, that there is uh, definitely information on the horizon to improve the treatment and overall outcome and also to improve the long-term effects. You know, one of the things we have been focusing on here at Dana-Farber and Boston Children's Hospital is the treatment of low-grade gliomas. And low-grade gliomas, as I said before, are the most common type of brain tumor in children. And the first thing we did is look at the long-term outcomes of children because this is a tumor that is also seen in the adult population, but the outcomes in, if you get diagnosed as an adult, are much different than in children. And children survive these tumors, and they survive long-term. We did a study looking at children 30 years in the, after their diagnosis, and they're still alive, and, there's, and so the important aspect in that respect is, as we had stated before, improve, making sure that 30 years from now, they're doing well, they're able to hold a job, go to school, get married, have a, a family if they so choose. And so that now impacts how we look at children when they get diagnosed today. You know, one of the things we've always been talking about is not just starting from after therapy, but looking at a child at the day they are diagnosed and trying to deter and making sure that as the survivor, because we that's how we want to treat them as survivors from day one, that they'll be survivors 20 years and doing well down the road. So one of the th first things we looked at is pack the outcome. And we saw that actually surgery doesn't make a significant impact on outcome, which is important because as we said before, having an excellent neurosurgeon is great. 
And if they can take out the tumor completely, that's very important. But they also don't have to be aggressive so that they can decrease the morbidities associated with surgical procedures. And then the next option is the therapies that, are choo that we choose. Chemotherapy is a very common therapy for low-grade gliomas. And we know that certain chemotherapies can have long-term toxicities with infertility, with secondary tumors, with potential cognitive deficits. So we know that we can choose specific treatments that will minimize those effects in the, uh, in the future. Then with some of the new targeted uh, information we have, where we're looking at specific mutations that we're finding within uh, pediatric low-grade gliomas, we can then potentially add those or modify therapies or if there's recurrence, because unfortunately there are recurrent, these tumors can come back, uh, that we can utilize targeted therapies, which we hope will also have minim will minimize the long-term toxicities. In addition, I know I keep talking about medulloblastoma, we're learning also from a molecular standpoint that if you fall into certain categories within medulloblastoma, that we can also potentially change the therapy. And here at Dana-Farber, we started a new treatment for a specific type of medulloblastoma where we're not using any radiation upfront. So we're removing radiation from the treatment and hopefully that will also allow from a long-term standpoint that you will have associated with radiation and still survive your tumor with no significant issues. So that's what we're constantly doing and we're constantly reassessing how our treatment of pediatric brain tumors to not only improve the cure, but also to improve the quality of life in survivorship. And I'm lucky like That's great, and actually it was interesting because uh, uh, a question that just came in that kind of deals in the same issue is this question of traditional chemotherapy seems uh, so harsh and has mediocre results for low-grade gliomas. Um, are there new tests and treatments on the horizon for kids that are BRAF negative? So the answer to that is yes. Um, Dr. Kieran is actually leading that charge as well. There are more, we're learning more and more about mutations and tumors, and not only that, but looking at also modifiers of genes and how we can potentially attack those tumors as well. So I'll, I'll actually probably defer here to Dr. Kieran since he's leading that uh, study here at Dana-Farber. Yeah, I have to say this has been an incredibly exciting area over the last number of years, really in the we have gone to understanding virtually nothing about these tumors to now having understood the pathway in the vast majority. And the question, obviously, uh, presumably from a family whose child has this tumor, is that we know that about 85% of the tumors actually have a mutation in a specific gene called BRAF. Uh, the mutation occurs as one of two things, either a specific mutation called V600E or something called the 15 49 KIAA mutation. And the nomenclature isn't so important. It turns out that those two mutations, both in the same gene but different mutations, are critically important because we have therapies for them. And again, that's important. Uh, the therapy that works for one stimulates the other to grow. So you can't mix them up. That's critically important. But the fact that we've discovered the BRAF mutation in about 85% means we have real therapeutic options for a significant percentage of patients. The question, of course, is what do you do to the other 15%? Well, we've discovered mutations, different mutations, in about 10% of those, and some of them are actually quite novel and complicated to uh, analyze, but we've now been able to do that and are setting up the test required to do that a small percentage for which the specific mutation hasn't been identified, which is why in one of Dr. Manley's previous comments, he'd said, we basically take every single 
particularly profile it is so that if it turns out that that's one of those 5% for which we don't know the answer, we're able to actually try and study it in the hopes that we're going to identify it. The question of which treatment one would use if it turned out you didn't have the BRAF mutation, well, that depends on exactly which mutation you have. Um, again, the 85% that have BRAF mutations, we have rational choices. For the 10% that have another mutation, we've got treatments for some of those, but not for all of them. It depends a little bit on what uh, companies have developed in terms of, of drugs that not are just successful against that mutation, but can penetrate into the brain. Many drugs, uh, the, it's very hard for a drug to penetrate into the brain, so there are some drugs hit the mutation but don't penetrate and therefore won't have any efficacy. So in, for those drugs, we have a group of biochem modify some of those existing drugs to see if we can't get their penetration better. While for those, the mutations that we're still discovering, um, those are obviously ones for which we don't have therapies because we haven't discovered the uh, correct uh, mutation yet. That means we have to go back to the more traditional therapy. I think we all agree that the therapy it's not very good um, in the sense of that although we've chosen therapy does a, that doesn't cause a lot of long-term toxicity because we know that these patients are going to be long-term survivors, we don't want to do the damage. We also know that they allow the tumor to come back frequent times, so kids have to go through multiple therapies before we finally stop the therapy, and obviously that's not good just in terms of the development of the child. And it's going to be important that this isn't one answer fits all until you know exactly what mutation your child has is going to determine about whether we have a good treatment option, we're developing an option, or we yet don't know the mutation. And in this sense, it again kind of reinforces the issue of you've got to be at a center that has this kind of expertise. Um, so let's keep going in terms of some of the other questions we've received. Um, so one of the questions was, can you talk about the efforts to reduce radiation in treating pediatric brain tumors? Uh, for example, recent research looking at long-term survival of low-grade patients, which you'd already mentioned, uh, who did not receive, uh, actually appeared to do better, and what are the uh, that are examining its feasibility to uh, eliminate radiation for a specific type of medulloblastoma. Again, something you'd already alluded to, but somebody wants a little more detail. So we looked at, uh, there's a national database that can, that a lot of information on specific tumor types. So we looked at all the low-grade gliomas that were sent into this database called the SEER database. And so we had over 4,000 children going back to the 1970s. And we have a lot of information on that in terms of their surgery, whether or not they had gross total resection, did they have chemotherapy, or did they have radiation, and are they, were they, did they survive their tumor, or did they not? And so we were able to track those patients out 30 plus years to see how they were doing. We found that the overall survival, so unfortunately the one thing we couldn't determine is what we call progression-free survival, or that their tumor didn't continue to grow after that diagnosis. So we don't know the therapies that they had been through to get to the survival point. But what we found is that over 85% of children who are diagnosed with low-grade gliomas survive. And there are some specific slightly better than others, but overall they do quite well. We then went on to look at their treatments. So the treatments, as we had stated before, are surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Unfortunately, in this database, chemotherapy is is a yes-no, and we don't know how many treatments, but we do know whether or not they received radiation and the type of surgery, whether it was taken out completely, biopsied, or what we call a subtotal, where a big chunk is taken out, but not all of it is. And we saw that surgery from a standpoint of, of, of survival didn't really make a difference in terms of the overall survival of these patients. 
So that's important to recognize. What we did do is when we looked at radiation, and we did see that radiation had a significant impact on overall survival and that people who had radiation did not survive uh, uh, as long a term as the, uh, as the patients who didn't receive. And the thought behind that is, is that the secondary issues associated with radiation, such as secondary tumors, because that can go along with radiation, and issues with vasculature, so you are at an increased risk for strokes in, um, down the road, um, 20 or 30 years, that they probably had died from those issues. What's interesting as well is soon after we presented our information, uh, a group in Toronto at, at Sick Children's Hospital looked at all of the patients in Ontario similar to us, but because they have a little bit more ability to find out the long-term issues, really were able to replicate our results, except they did determine what those patients passed away from, which was usually related to stroke or secondary malignancies. So they reiterated our strength in terms, uh, the strength of our paper in terms of the therapies utilized for low-grade gliomas that we do want to avoid radiation, and that surgery is important diagnosis, and also especially with this precision medicine to get the information about the molecular studies but you don't have to be aggressive because, again, surgery did not significantly impact overall survival. What was also interesting is we then looked at children who had aged into their adulthood to see if, that, if once they became adults, did they have any significant issues. And what we found is actually once you became an adult, looking at over the age of 23, your survival rate actually went up. So once you become an adult, you have even less of a chance of having problems with your low-grade glioma. So the survival rate went to over 90%. So again, we have to think about the therapies that we utilize so that we know patients will survive their low-grade glioma. And in response to your second question, a lot of information has been found out about a tumor called medulloblastoma, which again is a tumor that's very common in children. And the standard treatment for children with medulloblastoma is we give radiation to the whole brain and to the whole spine. We always give a boost of radiation to the back part of the brain because that's usually where, that's where that tumor occurs is in the back part of the brain. And then we give multi-agent chemotherapy. So it's very aggressive because this tumor can be very aggressive if not treated. Just a few years ago, there was a, a uh, collaboration through us at Dana-Farber, through uh, Toronto and a group in Europe as well. So this again, we're all working together to try to find the best information and the best way to treat people to look at medulloblastoma, not just from a, under a microscope, but also on a molecular level. And we found that these tumors do subcategorize, is what we call it. So they, they group into specific types of mutations. And there was one type of mutation called the Wnt pathway, which is a specific that can stimulate growth, or WNT. And what we saw that in, that in the patients who were diagnosed and had that pathway tumor, the survival rate was very, very high, upwards of almost 100%. And so the thought then is, what do you do with those patients? If with a standard of treat the standard treatment, they do very, very well. Almost 100% of them will survive. But we know that the top therapies with the chemotherapy they receive and with the radiation they receive, they can have long-term toxicities with infertility, with cognition, with hormone problems, with secondary tumors, with stroke. Can we reduce the dose of radiation or can we completely it? So here at Dana-Farber, uh, we developed a trial to remove radiation completely from the treatment of patients with this Wnt positive tumor. This is a multi-institutional trial, so it's being done all over the United States. Um, but we are the ones who designed and are overseeing the study. For patients who have wind positive medulloblastoma, radiation and get chemotherapy only. 
specific, there are very specific criteria. So you, you have to have just a medulloblastoma that's been completely removed and you can't have disease anywhere else. But with this type of, with this group of tumors, they rarely have what we call metastatic disease. And then we're giving chemotherapy only and seeing how they do. We do know that in patients who receive chemotherapy, they also do, that if it does come back, we can still, what we say, salvage with very good results with radiation. So we also feel that these patients still can do well and we're not putting that at an increased risk. We actually may be able to get the same amount of survival with no radiation. And we've done this in the past with medulloblastoma with slowly reducing the dose of radiation overall and have had good results as well. So we really hope with this type of treatment um, that we will be able to remove radiation completely and hopefully prevent some of the long-term so risks associated with that and also minimize the, we also have given a little bit less chemotherapy as well to minimize the side effects from that. And with that said, there's also the other classes of medulloblastoma we're also working to determine what the best therapies are for them because some are more aggressive and some are not as aggressive as well. So I don't know if you'd yeah, like to add anything to that. I think the one thing that it's important for families to understand, particularly as we've talked about this concept of the molecular understanding of your tumor as opposed to simply looking at it under the microscope. Looking under the microscope is 500-year-old technology. And the question is, can molecular biology really make us, provide us an understanding um, of what's going on on the inside of the cell, not just on the surface. And so this disease medulloblastoma, this very common childhood tumor, in fact, isn't a tumor. It turns out it's four different tumors. And so it's no longer a question of my child has medullo. It's do you have the Wnt type of medullo, what's called the sonic type of medullo, the MYC or what we call group four. And to some extent, it's only once you know that you can actually design the treatment treatments are beginning to differentiate based on that molecular profile, not just whether you've got medullo or not. So here's a case where really molecular profiling has completely altered the way we approach these tumors. Um, so another question that, uh, again, uh, somebody had come back to was this question of, um, have there been promising studies looking at immunotherapy treatment for glioblastoma, and is this a treatment option for children with brain tumors? So the answer is we hope. Um, as Dr. Kieran had said before, that immune modulation has uh, become more prevalent. Um, glioblastomas are unfortunately a very aggressive type of brain tumor, and it's not as common in children as it's a little bit more common in adults. And there was a lot of press recently um, about some other studies at other institutions for utilizing immune therapy. We actually have been utilizing immunotherapy here as well, uh, where we do inject a a virus, and it's not a, a live virus, it's a, what we call an attenuated virus, so it won't spread throughout. And we've attached a molecule in there that will hopefully make the tumor more sensitive to various therapies. And then we add those therapies in, and the hope is that when the tumor cell dies, that the immune system will then recognize it as foreign. One of the problems with tumors is they, is they evade the immune system. So your immune system is always looking for abnormalities within your body. If you get a sunburn, you've caused damage to the cells in your skin, and your immune system will go along, and if the cell looks abnormal, it will tell that cell to die. And so what tumors do is they secrete chemicals that tell the immune system to relax around them so that the immune system won't attack that specific tumor or that damaged cell. And so the hope is by providing this immune therapy, that we then stimulate the immune system to attack the tumor itself. And then the other thought is we know that these tumors 
will be located in one part of the brain, but there might be some cells in a different part of the brain that then the immune system will recognize those cells as well as foreign and hopefully attack and kill those tumors. So there has been a lot of change over the last even year with immune therapy, and we hope that that will improve over time. There's still a lot of research to be done, and, but we do hope for these more aggressive types of tumors, especially glioblastoma, where the survival rates are quite poor, that we will be able to utilize a different type of therapy because the current therapies right now have not been very good. Yeah, I, and I would just add to that, one of the problems with uh, these immune therapies that are being adult tumors that they're initially being tested in is that when you turn the immune system on to recognize the tumor, sometimes it's very hard to control exactly how aggressive it is. And what, what's being observed in many studies is not that you can't turn the immune system on, it's that you have trouble controlling it. When you turn it on, it doesn't just start attacking the tumor, which remember is part of you, it starts attacking normal parts of you as well into what basically ends up being a type of autoimmune disease. And for people that have any experience in their families uh, with autoimmune diseases, things that can be like, like uh, lupus or arthritis or uh, Crohn's disease, those kinds of things, you can see what happens when the, your own immune system gets a little out of control. So it's not just a question of waking up the immune system, it's waking it up in a way that you can still manage it without getting it out of control. And those are the things we're learning. The reason that's important is we're just starting another trial. As you heard, we have one trial for immune therapy in patients with glioblastoma in children, and we're about to start another one. Whereas for the diseases, we're already pretty well curing, although not perfectly, but for example, low-grade gliomas, the risks of that autoimmunity are so high, we're not starting with immune therapies in that particular disease. We're doing them in the more malignant and aggressive diseases first. So not every disease is the same level of the types of trials, the types of approaches that are being considered, it's in a case-by-case, tumor-by-tumor basis. So let's uh, move on. Here's a, a different question. Uh, several years ago, there was a breakthrough, uh, actually, that came out of the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Hospital for the treatment of a highly malignant uh, tumor called atypical teratoid rhabdoid tumor. Um, survival is still relatively poor. It's only about 50%. Can you talk about progress being made in that disease uh, from that time? So I mean, I think the first important thing is to recognize that even when we presented that information and, and did the trial, that the survival rates were less than 10%, and we were able to bring them up to close to 50%. So I think that's very important that just from that step. So with ATRT, this is a very aggressive tumor that unfortunately, that unfortunately presents in ch young children. So we usually see this in young children. It's not a very common type of tumor, so it's also very important from a collaborative standpoint that we work with the group here at Dana-Farber, but also we are working with other centers around the, the United States, Canada, and in Europe to develop uh, additional therapies to try them. What's important to understand too is with, whenever you're trying a new treatment, you want to be able to do this as quickly as possible, and if we just worked within Dana-Farber itself, we wouldn't be able to, to do a study. It would take us 10 years. So we're developing collaborations and we're designing trials that we're then working with other centers around the world to be able to provide those uh, treatments. So I think the first thing is we've significantly improved the outcomes with ATRT just uh, recently, uh, but now again with some of the uh, things we're understanding about these types of tumors and the molecular abnormalities within them, that there are now, we are looking at other therapies and other, other targeted therapies uh, that we will hopefully be bringing down into trial very soon. Uh, 
So that, that's what we're utilizing right now to, to improve the treatments for uh, pediatric ATRT, and that we're going to continue utilizing similar therapies that we have right now with standard chemotherapy and radiation, but then hopefully adding in some molecular targeted therapies with some of the understandings that we've had from the breakthroughs here at Dana-Farber. Great. Now the next question uh, with what is perhaps the worst tumor of all in pediatrics, uh, this unique entity called uh, DIPG, diffuse intrinsic ponting glioma. Uh, the question, uh, this tumor remains one of the most lethal uh, childhood tumors. Can you discuss what treatment options and research might offer more hope to these uh, patients? And then there's a second part just about uh, some uh, national studies that have looked at the utilization of some available uh, drugs being used in other diseases uh, that have shown some response in mice with these kinds of tumors and our thoughts on that. So diffuse intrinsic ponting glioma or DIPG as we call it uh, is unfortunately the one of the worst tumors we have to deal with. The survival rates for children are essentially zero. So unfortunately most children who are diagnosed with DIPG right now uh, usually will not survive more than two years. The other issue with DIPG was it was so, it looked so typical on an MRI scan that we, nev we, don't, we never biopsied these tumors because we re realized many years ago that doing a biopsy didn't really change the outcome or change the therapies. And so there were many different trials of radiation and multiple chemotherapies that really never worked on diffuse intrinsic ponting glioma. And no one ever really was interested in doing a biopsy because again, the location is right in the brainstem. So the brainstem is the, the area of your spinal cord. So all the nerves run down through that. And so there was always worry that if you tried to biopsy, you could cause significant problems. But now again, with our surgical techniques improving and, and the expertise of surgery we have here at Dana-Farber and Boston Children's, we are able to biopsy the brainstem. And we instituted a trial here many years ago where we're biopsying these tumors important in that respect is we've tried multiple chemotherapies, we've tried radiation, and none of these have worked. And, but there was no necessary understanding of how these tumors ticked, basically, is what did they do on a molecular level to understand how they work and can we develop potential targets. The other issue is there were people are always trying to develop models, whether it's in a petri dish or in a mouse, to be able to test drugs on animals. Um, so we started a protocol here where we were biopsying these tumors and able to get tissue and do it in a safe fashion because again of our, the expertise we have here. So we're, we were, bi we're biopsying these tumors, getting the information. Uh, Dr. Kieran, and I'm going to defer to him because he recently published the paper de uh, defining what these mutations are and then what to do next in, uh, for a therapeutic trial. This is still ongoing and in development and we're still doing additional biopsies to get more information and to get more tissue. When you're, when you're operating on the brainstem, you can't take a large chunk of tissue, so we're dealing with very small amounts of tissue. To be able to get a lot of information as much as possible is a very difficult thing, but we have been able to do that here. Yeah, this has been an area um, of enormous advance. Again, for 50 years, we treated these patients really just based on the appearance of their scans not understanding anything about the tumors, and not surprisingly, if you don't understand the tumor, the likelihood you're gonna guess on an effective therapy is pretty small, particularly since we assumed that this DIPG was just the same thing as a, the same kind of tumors that occur in adults, but in different parts of the brain, uh, these things called glioblastoma or GBM, the kind of tumor that, for example, Senator uh, Kennedy had died from. 
The problem is that it turns out once we actually did these, and the way we did it was again uh, through the development of the neurosurgical expertise, and again, because this can't just be done at one location, it's actually being, our study is being performed at 25 centers across the United States, where in order for a site outside of Dana-Farber to want to participate in the trial, their surgeons have to go through a training course in order to, sh to be sure that it can be done safely. And the good thing is in over 40 biopsies, we've now shown that this can be done safely and that the kind of information we can get has told us a few things. First of all, it tells us that the mutations in these children have virtually nothing to do with the mutations that adults have with a very similar looking tumor. And that's important because it means all of those trials we were testing based on adult GBM, the fact that they didn't work in pediatrics, we now understand it's because they're not the same tumor, even though they appear the same under the microscope. I think the second important issue is that when we actually did the biopsies, we discovered mutations that in fact have never been known in any other tumor in any other type of cancer in human beings, adult or pediatrics. And obviously if the mutations had never been discovered in cancer before, uh, then certainly we weren't looking for drugs for them, nor were we going to test them. Now that we know that patients with DIPG have those mutations, we can begin to adapt therapies. The trial that was talked about originally piloted from Stanford University looking at some commercially available drugs and some of these new uh, mutations and the way to target them is the first kind of opportunity to actually get this into clinical trials. Obviously, it's one thing to treat a mouse. It's a different thing to treat a human being. We've cured mouse tumors many times. Human tumors are much more complicated. So whether any of these therapies are going to work or not, we're not sure. We've tested some of these drugs already in human beings and unfortunately have not seen a lot of good responses, in part because the human tumors adapt so quickly around them. But as we understand those adaptations, we're going to be able to come up with combinations that we believe eventually are going to change the course of this disease. So while we're making enormous inroads in the last five years than we made in the prior 50, we still have a little ways to go. But I think for on the horizon, there's a real sense that this is a disease that can be beat. So stay tuned, I think, for that one. Um, let's see, another question here is, um, what can you talk about in terms of advances in neurosurgery and neurology that are helping our patients? So I think we touched on this uh, briefly, where from a neurosurgical standpoint, we have here at Dana-Farber and Boston Children's Hospital that we have a, an intraoperative MRI. So the way we look at brain tumors, the best way that we can see them is through a radiologic process called magnetic resonance imaging. There's no radiation associated with this, which is nice because, again, we try to minimize radiation to those patients. Uh, and so what normally happened before this is a child would go and have a surgical procedure. Then the, after the surgery was done, they would get an MRI about one to two days after their surgery. If they saw that there was still tumor left behind, there was the discussion of whether or not to go back in and repeat the surgery. There are some uh, pediatric brain tumors where surgery is quite important and the more you take out, the better off you are. What this allows is, is that this allows the surgeon to do an MRI while the child is still under anesthesia, in the operating room, they can get a picture of the brain tumor and see if they've removed it all. If they haven't, they have that opportunity of not having the child have to go through another anesthesia or another brain surgery, they can finish the surgery and remove all the tumor at that time point. Again, um, from a biopsy standpoint, some, some tumors we can't, always we can't always take them out, but we always want to get tissue. What the surgeon can also do is they get um, what we call a wand imaging, where they have uh, 
technology within the operating room where they can put kind of a, a uh, well, they, it looks exactly like a wand, on, on the brain and are, and are able to very eloquently target the specific area where that brain tumor is. So they're not going in blind to be able to try to get the biopsy. So this sometimes minimizes the invasive procedure of the biopsy. It can be what we call a stereotactic biopsy, where it's very targeted and they can go in with a small incision. So they don't have to do a, an open craniotomy and open the head. They can go in with a small incision. Um, and then again, I think we had talked about looking, doing MRIs prior to the surgery and where the tumor is in relation to blood vessels, nerves, the nerves of the body to see if the, if the tumor itself is entwined within the nerves or pushing nerve bundles aside. And that allows the surgeon to understand the anatomy of the tumor and be able to avoid blood vessels and nerves that can cause uh, in that respect. Um, from a neurology standpoint, we, our neurologists are very adept at taking care of seizures now. The medications that are seizure prophylaxis, because unfortunately seizures happen after surgery or they can be part of the pre presenting symptoms of a brain tumor, that the, the medicine doesn't have a lot of side effects. The older seizure medicines did cause a lot of toxicity with altering your blood counts, hurting your liver. Um, causing a multitude of other problems. So some of the newer seizure medicines have been able to uh, improve that. And in addition, they don't interact with the therapies we utilize. So we can give seizure prophylaxis without having to worry about interactions between chemotherapy and seizure medication. We're always working on ways to improve strength. And so there are, we're working on uh, physical therapy and our neurologists help significantly with that. So those, after effects also are becoming much more uh, easy to deal with uh, f after the patient has done with therapy. That's great. Um, so the next question is, uh, one of the major obstacles for treating brain tumors is finding chemotherapies that penetrate the blood-brain barrier, um, that uh, the kind of boundary that protects the brain from the rest of the body. Um, can you talk about any recent advances um, that help drugs cross the barrier to successfully treat tumors? So I think Dr. Kieran had already spoken about this. We have a number of chemists here and, and who help and understand that certain molecules will not get through the blood-brain barrier. One of the interesting things with some of the treatments we provide is also we talk about anti-angiogenic therapy. So anti-angiogenic therapy attacks the blood vessels that are uh, forming to, uh, tr to give the tumor all of its nutrients. That actually you don't need to be able to penetrate through the blood-brain barrier for all of that. So that's one aspect of therapies that we do know about. Uh, there have been studies that have been tried to open up the blood-brain barrier. Those are ongoing. Um, we haven't had great success with that. The other issue too is there are some that the blood-brain barrier has already been broken down. And so we understand in that aspect that these tumors still may respond well to therapy. So we're always looking at the tumor itself and trying to understand when we're trialing drugs, that's one of the things we'll always ask. So if someone comes to us and they want to, we want, we're interested in utilizing a specific drug, whether it's a targeted therapy or a chemotherapy, one of the first things we're always going to look at is what do we think in terms of the penetration through the blood-brain barrier. So here at Dana-Farber, that's one of the aspects that we're always going to look at before we move a trial forward for testing in, in patients. Great, I think the other thing I would add to that is in fact, the first national trial for something called convection-enhanced delivery, that's where you insert these small catheters into right around the tumor so that you can inject drugs that can't penetrate 
which means it is a way to get something that wouldn't otherwise ever get into the tumor is getting there. Obviously, there's all kinds of technology in terms of the way the catheters work and stuff that I won't go into. Uh, the other thing that's become quite exciting recently has actually been this idea. Also, it turns out that there are certain spray uh, molecules you can put into the nose, and there's a blood vessel that feeds the brain right behind there. You can often get the drug to penetrate those blood vessels. And so uh, there's very exciting work going on with intranasal uh, penetration of drugs into the brain that avoid going to the rest of the body so you don't get the toxicity because they go directly into the brain. So again, there's here. We have a long way to go. As you heard, we do have a chemist that works with us to try and help modify the molecules uh, where possible. And all of these approaches together, I think what really will provide the opportunity to do some of those things. There's a question right down uh, your alley. Um, how should parents help their child's school understand the impact of brain tumors and the treatment that it's had on both their development and learning? Well, that's a very important. We really focus on that here in our clinic. So our, our clinic, our brain tumor survivorship clinic, is a multidisciplinary clinic with oncology, neurology, uh, psychology, neuropsychology, and we actually are very lucky also to have a school liaison program here. So. One of the important things to recognize is that any treatment, whether it's surgery only, chemotherapy, radiation, or a combination of the three, can have an impact on a child's learning abilities. So one of the first things we always recommend is that a child, after they're done with treatment, undergo what we call neuropsychologic testing. This is just a series of tests that are done at, at uh, Dana-Farber Children's Hospital. And what that does is specifically look at where the strengths and weaknesses of how a child learns, because all of us have strengths and, strength and weaknesses in terms of how we learn. This will identify specific areas in terms of memory, executive function, where you have a lot of, where you have to be able to coordinate a bunch of different instructions, math, reading. And what that allows us to do then is then to take that information and to go to the school. And when that, we take that information and go to the school, parents are, allowed to ask for an evaluation through the school. And it's very important to recognize, though, that this is only through public schools. Private schools are not required to do this. Some pub private schools will. But this is required by all public schools in Massachusetts to develop a program called an individualized education plan. And what that allows families to do is the child can sometimes get extra time on tests because what we find is children who have had treatments can have what we call difficulty with processing. So it might take them two more minutes to get the same answer that another mean that they don't know the answer, but that they still just need a little bit more time. And so they'll get 100% on a test if they get an hour and a half instead of just the standard hour. And so they can develop extra time on tests, tutoring, pull, what we call pullouts, where they're taken out of class. If they have problems with their vision, sometimes they'll get class notes. If they have problems with their hearing, we can develop, the, we can have a system called an FM system where they can wear headphones in the, so they can hear the teacher well. So that allows us to give them all the things they need to succeed. We also have a school liaison program, which is a wonderful aspect to our clinic, where they will go to the school and sit with you during the IEP, or the development of this individualized education plan, to ensure that, the, that our patients are getting everything that, that is needed. And then also, when reviewed, we'll go with you to the school or even be on the phone to be able to make sure that the individualized education plan is being implemented. And that change, and we always, we will repeat the neuropsych testing every two to three years because as you go through school, 
the challenges are different and your the way a child thinks and they develop their cognition diff changes as they get into high school. And the important thing to recognize is if you have these uh, accommodations where you can get extra time on tests, that can apply to SATs, it can apply to the MCAS, and then also there are place there are colleges that still provide these services. So you don't have to be alone in that being having difficulty with learning that it can you can get assistance throughout even in college. So this is very important and parents need to also be excellent advocates for their children that if they don't feel that the child is getting what is written out in the individualized education plan they need to speak up and also ask for help and we're always happy to do that here at Dana-Farber because of the uh, ability we have and our school liaison programs and that even also is through their treatment as well because kids are going to miss school while they're being treated and so we'll arrange for tutoring so they can continue and graduate with their peers that are going forward as well. You mentioned Massachusetts, is that available? Is that states? Or? Most states do have individualized education plans at least in the New England area. So New Hampshire, Maine and uh, Rhode Island do offer the same uh, accommodations. Okay. But it does vary from school district to school district, so you, have, you do need to talk to the, the principal and the guidance counselors at your schools. Okay. Um, uh, next question, a couple of uh, questions. So first is, what are the research priorities for improving the outcome of children with tumors? So again, I think it's, it's a multidisciplinary group that we have here where we're, just, where we're looking at the therapies that we're giving how can we continuously improve on those therapies, utilizing what we feel is best in terms of survival, but also in terms of long-term outcomes, and applying those to the different patients with their different brain tumors. So we're very specific in terms of the types of tumors and that we provide for each of those tumors, recognizing that, the, that we want these, that we, that we children to survive, and that we want these children to survive with as min, uh, little uh, long-term effects as possible. We're always constantly looking at ways that we can improve with all of the information that's coming out, looking at the new therapies that are available and being able to uh, offer those therapies to all of our patients. Okay, and if, I guess if we ask the same question, the research priorities for the treatment of these children. So the treatment of the, so the, I mean, for the treatment of the children, we're, again, it's the same idea is, is reassessing always what the therapies are that we're giving to uh, these patients and also when we're looking at the long-term effects that we that have already occurred how can we help kids in that respect as well so we're running from diagnose from diagnosis all the way through survivorship as well so we're still tr we're still seeing kids 10 plus years after their treatment and what the problems are and then to be able to assess to be able to help them in that time, but also to be able to help them in their diagnosis of their brain tumor and offer the best therapy possible, not just for patients who have been diagnosed for the first time, but also for patients who have recurrent disease and again, be able to allow them to survive their tumor in as healthy as possible afterwards. Okay, uh, again, one of the, I, I guess I would kind of add to that, um, most people think that the, there's kind of this massive effort for understanding both the diagnosis and the treatment of pediatric uh, tumors in general, and certainly brain tumors. Unfortunately, pediatric brain tumors are still the number one cause of cancer-related death in children. Um, unfortunately, the National Institutes of Health, the 
uh, National Cancer Institute, those organizations which are critically important in terms of supporting research and the efforts for moving forward in uh, the United States, obviously are really focused on the big four cancers, adult prostate, colon, lung, breast cancer, that in the general scheme of things, pediatrics unfortunately tends to fall down the list a little bit because it's not that common um, and therefore just doesn't garner the kind of interest that, uh, that the adult cancers do. Um, that's important because I don't think families understand that most of the advances, in fact, many of the things we've talked about today, the discoveries that were made were not funded by any of those organizations. They were funded by families whose children were diagnosed with these diseases and said, you know, the fact that you don't know very much about these tumors and that little research is acceptable, and they're really the ones that stepped up to the plate and the support that allows much of this to happen. And in fact, the majority of everything we've talked about today, some of them to the extent of 100%, were fully funded through family organizations and foundations, not through the National Cancer Institute, the National Institutes of Health, and so forth. So, you know, one of the things that I think families have to understand, as hard as it is to be going through uh, the recognition of a diagnosis of a brain tumor in your child, is that to many ex to, to, in many ways, I would say, it's the actual, um, it's your ability to speak on behalf of your child, not just in terms of finding the right place that has the expertise to treat them, but knowing that you're also going to be an important part of moving the kinds of things that need to be done to actually develop um, the discovery of the cause of the tumors as well as the uh, treatments for those tumors. So being an advocate on those multiple levels becomes an important part of what families uh, of children with brain tumors have been able to do. And I would add to that that even, and even after the child has completed their therapy for brain tumors, there's still a lot of help that needs to be given to these families. And sometimes a lot of those resources even fall off even further. So even for survivorship, there's always that need and a lot of families have uh, rallied behind the survivorship clinic as well to help provide support to it. Now, I know we're getting close to the end, but let me ask a, a question that I suspect most families, certainly in my experience, come up with, um, and that is, uh, why my child? Like, are my other children at risk? What are the causes of brain tumors and what could I have done to avoid my child getting their tumor? So the answer to that question is, unfortunately, there's well, fortunately and unfortunately, there's nothing that the parents could have done. So there are a few types of what we call cancer predispositions where we know that the child is at risk for a tumor if their family or other family members have been at risk. So there's a syndrome that's common in, in the general population called neurofibromatosis, but most people will know that they have neurofibromatosis. And for that, those patients, we can counsel them and make them understand that, they, that their children or their offspring will have risk of tumors. But for the majority of children with brain tumors, there really is no um, genetic predisposition. So this is all, unfortunately, it just happened. It's nothing that uh, when a woman is pregnant that she ate anything or did anything. There's no exposures that we know. Um, you know, there, people worry about cell phones or vaccines. We know that th those aren't it don't increase the risk of brain tumors. This unfortunately just happens and, it, and that there's nothing to do. Siblings do not need to be um, imaged. So I know people worry about that when their child has a headache or their bro the brother or sister of, of a child with a brain tumor has a headache, they're worried should they get imaged? Uh, and the answer to that is no. The chance of a child who has a sibling with a brain tumor is almost that of the general population. So we don't need to 
do anything else for the siblings unless we start seeing that there is a, a big family history of cancer and then we would have a genetics evaluation at that time. This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Mark Kieran and Dr. Peter Manley of the Pediatric Neuro-Oncology Program at Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.